Okay, so 12.02, we're going to go ahead and get started. Um, first, I want to thank everybody for being um, here today at the Fearless Authenticity webcast. Um, it's going to be a good conversation. I would like to have everybody really think about um, how you are um, how you practice emotional intelligence when you're having conversations like this. So as we're going through this webcast, what are you feeling? What are you thinking? Um, what questions come up for you? And um, I'd like you to pose those questions into the chat room, but really pay attention to your own reactions as we go through this. This is a very, what we like to call safe webcast. So um, you've got the Doctors of Authenticity, Sherry Maloof, Dr. Sherry Maloof, and, and Dr. Jim Smith. And on that note, I'm going to turn it over to them. Again, put your questions in chat. If you do have something that you'd like, a question you'd really like to verbally ask, um, pop me a quick message in chat, uh, and we'll get started, okay? Dr. Jim Smith and Dr. Sherry Maloof. So, hi, everybody. It's, uh, it's great to have you here. And uh, we had a discussion last week about authenticity, which we've done a couple of times now. And we thought it's time to get into a subject that's meaty and uh, can get people kind of going a little bit. And uh, at the end of our conversation last week, George, had talked about in the chat, George Simons, Dr. George Simons, who's going to uh, come on and, and talk with us today, uh, actually added into the chat that, uh, you know, his experience as a white man is that he gets accused or uh, his identity gets aligned with being a white supremacist and he's got, um, you know, uh, all the attributes that go along with that, the privilege that goes along with that. So we're gonna be uh, talking about this. Before we get into that though, I wanted to just say a little bit about emotion. And uh, it was great what uh, Cindy was just talking about. Now, one of the things that I always say when I think about emotion and really strong emotions that we have about things is that can I get to neutral to have a discussion with somebody else? So for example, if I'm reacting to somebody, how do I manage my own reactions? How do I look at myself? One of the things uh, lately that, or for quite a while now that I've done is I never say words like, you make me feel. Uh, that makes me, that's giving my power away to you. That's giving you control of what I'm thinking, what I'm feeling, and what my emotions are. So we really want to hold our emotions as something that we're responsible for. The other thing that I think about with emotions is that it's, a, uh, it's almost like a map to what's going on in me. Like I need to take a look at me and why I'm reacting to certain situations. I need to go inside and say, what is this doing to me right now and what is it? Now, it's not that there aren't things happening out here to trigger us. Uh, there's a lot of stuff. There's stuff daily that triggers everybody. But it's more of going inside and saying, what's going on for me? Why is this touching me? Why is this bothering me, hurting me, causing me pain, causing me anger? 
Once I look at that, uh, one of the things I suggest people do is take the two extremes. So what's the worst possible scenario in the situation that you're looking at that's triggering your emotions and what's the best possible scenario? Because what happens then is we get into a neutral place. And when I'm in a neutral place, I can have a discussion with another person that's a lot more powerful. I'm not, um, emotions cause us to uh, stop uh, creative thinking, stop rational thinking. Uh, we really can't have a good discussion then. So today we really want to find a way to get neutral. And again, I'm gonna say this, I say this every time, please ground yourself, get your feet flat on the floor, Everybody take a deep breath, you know, and just sigh and let out whatever stress you've had getting to this thing today. And again, thank you for being here. And uh, just feel yourself centered, relaxed in your chair and calm and grounded. And uh, so I'd like to go to Jim now. And Jim, you and I talked about having this conversation mm -hmm. and that it would be interesting. And you have a way of uh, managing yourself and managing a conversation uh, yeah. that I'd like you to share with everybody uh, sure. what that is. It's a model that I've used a number of years. It's from Deborah Tannen's work. But before I dive into it, I just want to say George's timing last week was the epitome of content teaser at its best. We're finishing and he drops that boom. Mm -hmm. Next week, we're going to do it. But the model itself is called the communication methods of dialogue model. And there's two sides to the model. One is the doubting side, and one is the believing side. So I'm going to quickly go through each side, sharing the why, the how, the process for each side. But it's for communication. Again, it helped tremendously over the years with me doing diversity and inclusion work. Now, the doubting side, the process, is to win, it's to be right, where the believing side, the process is to understand, to learn. You are not attempting to be right, persuade, you wanna understand, you want to learn. The process for the doubting side, as the person is talking, you take nothing they're saying at face value. You're competitive and you're suspicious. Believing side, the process is accept that whatever the person is saying is true for them. It doesn't have to be true for you, except that it's true for them. It's their reality. You want to be open and you wanna be curious. Now, the method, the method for the doubting side, you want proof, you want evidence. As they're talking, you're planning your rebuttal. You're ready to debate. In essence, you really don't wanna hear them, you really don't wanna hear what they have to say because you already know what you're going to say. Where the opposite side for the believing process, you suspend judgment, active listening, you want dialogue. The position for the doubting side, you're the challenger and you use that 
two-word term that drives me crazy. You are the devil's advocate. Let me play devil's advocate. When you're a devil's advocate, you're not looking to help or to lift. You're looking to find fault or provide another perspective. That's the doubting side. Where the believing side, the position is learner, and you want to see the other person's point of view. And finally, the outcome, the last part of the model, the last part for the doubting side is suspicion, guarded communication, and you're still ready to argue, where for the other side, the believing side, is trust, is open communication, and there's unfolding dialogue, where you're going back and forth. And Sherry, I've used this model personally, professionally, it helps get to a point of collaboration. Now, I do know that there are times when both sides might be the best to use, depending on the time and circumstances and what's happening. But for me overall, I believe that I spend the bulk of my time on the believing side because I want to learn, I want to understand, and primarily right now, I read something the other day where the person said, silence is violence. We want people to talk right now. We want them to share what's on their heart, what's in their head, so we can continue to learn from each other, not compare pain points, but work to help each other. Sounds like a good model. What do you think? I, I like it. Uh, and so one of the things that I think would be interesting, uh, Jim, is as you're going through this conversation with George, if you find yourself going from the believing side to the doubting side. Can you stop and talk about it? Talk about what you're experiencing? <laughs> and we can, because I think it's helpful for people. This is part of the fearless authenticity, right? And we're putting you square in the hot seat on this one, as well as George. <laughs> so I don't know if George understood what he was signing up for. <laughs> uh, so uh, what I'd like to do is go along and uh, just kind of look at, stop every now and then and look at how the conversation is going, look at how people are feeling, and then move on. And sure. uh, again, if other people want to uh, talk to us, uh, say something, or, you know, uh, put something in the chat, please uh, ask us questions. We're happy to work with everybody here. Uh, this is an evolving process for us as human beings to be able to talk to each other in our differences. The us versus them dichotomy is very deep in all of us. It's in us from the time we're born. It's just a part of humanity. And we need to step into our bigger selves to be able to have these conversations in a powerful way. So why don't we bring um, George on with us now. Cindy, if you could uh, release him from your clutches. <laughs> Hi, George. How are you today? Hi, folks. Uh, well, I'm pretty good. It's um, dinner time, so uh, let's get on with it so I can get into the kitchen <laughs> and do some good things. Um, so, am I expected to lead off with something here? Well, why don't you give us a, why don't you talk, give a little bit about your background and who you are? Uh, well, who am I? I'm 82 years old. I'm a U.S. American who's lived in France for the past uh, 25 years and then uh, in the Netherlands and in Germany before that. So I've lived half my life abroad. 
Um, I am basically involved, I mean, I'm involved with you guys because I've been for a quarter of a century a certified and certifying trainer in NST and, uh, and power and influence. And uh, my main work at the moment is doing intercultural work, particularly I've been trying to create games that stimulate the possibility for people to make good contact with each other by sharing their cultural stories. Uh, that's enough. That's basically what I'm all about. And uh, I'll start out by being a little bit contentious here. Um, Sherry, I thought your, your introduction was really nice, but it was typical white woman. Okay. Uh, now, what do I mean by that? Yeah, I, mean, I mean, you have the privilege of taking that position. And when I started this, you know, made that little note the other day, I started this conversation. Uh, what I'm just really aware of and trying to deal with is that the level of anger and the level of recrimination about white privilege and systemic racism is enormous at this point. And I, for one, am looking for clues as to how I can be effective as another human being in my context and in the, you know, the world is open to us because we're all connected nowadays and, and, and be more effective. And what's occurred to me in this, this, this moment, at least, is that um, I am de facto rejected as a white male as being basically in the rhetoric, in the rhetoric, I'm listening to it, responsible for all of this stuff and I'm maintaining all of this stuff. Well, you know, it doesn't help me to, to, uh, to protest that since I was in graduate school, I have been involved in social action around racism, around peace and all that other sort of stuff. That's just, that's dismissed as, oh, so we don't wanna hear about your pedigree. You know, that's, this is what I'm getting all over the place. So I'm, you know, I'm pretty good. I realize the anger is there. The anger is justified and I'm doing my best to listen to it. But I have no response other than, well, I hear you, I hear you. And uh, uh, I would like to be a more active ally, if that word is still legitimate, that's under question too at the moment, uh, to the people who are suffering from discrimination uh, for racial reasons or other reasons for that matter. So this is where I'm coming from. And uh, it's basically that little post was my frustration of, after being involved in this kind of stuff for about 60 years, my pedigree, my nasty pedigree, um, uh, where do we go from here? And uh, what, what can be working for us? Um, I mean, I, I, a good example of what generates this sort of stuff, I was on an hour long, I, I belong to a group that meets on Friday nights and I was in an hour long uh, conversation which basically turned to be about racism. And uh, the two black people on it just, you know, there are two things. One, I wasn't able to say anything about what I'm doing or what I want to do or so on and so forth. Uh, that was my pedigree. I should stay away from that. And then, um, you know, uh, what I'm about is helping people understand each other's stories. Now, it's absolutely useless 
for me to share my experience of discrimination because no one can understand what it's like to be black. Well, at least I might have some hints by discrimination that I've experienced when I share my story. But we're not in a place at this point where we're sharing stories. And, um, you know, I'll be frank, I have, I have my own prejudices. I am very much an anti-Anglo person in terms of my unconscious biases. Mm -hmm. I mean, my sense of it is that much of what we're experiencing has been, uh, there's, a, there's an author on The Guardian who has written a book called Chosen People, the idea that connects England and America. It's not the exact title, but I can get it for you if you're interested in it. But it, it points out the fact that, you know, uh, in the United States, immigrants had to, because of the black-white uh, uh, paradigm, immigrants had to show themselves, be, had to become white. And if you look at the 1830s, 1840s, the newspaper uh, cartoons, the Irish, for example, have their little Irish caps on and they're pictured as black monkeys. Okay, and uh, so whether you were Irish or Catholic or, I mean, I still come from, I'm old enough to have a generation where uh, going to Catholic school, you might get stones thrown at you uh, wow. because, you know, you were in that. So I'm not complaining about that. I'm just saying those are kinds of things that help me understand why people might be angry. Sure. They were not perpetuated against me as they are against uh the people who are right now suffering from the racial prejudice. But my concern is how do we white people who are whatever shade of white we are, how do we not escape from this responsibility, but how do we react to it effectively? Because there is a systemic racism, even though we don't feel like we're the ones who are perpetuating it, even though it's obvious that in some areas, because we're white, we benefit from it. I have no question. I have no question about the problem. My question is about how can I be a friend, colleague, ally to the people who are involved? This is, you know, this shows up all kinds of different places. So well, I'm going to interrupt you right now, George, because we've got some things going on in the chat room. Um, that are talking about the challenges people have in these difficult situations. How do you manage the receiver's reaction? What if you're really um, worried or fearful, fearful about how the other person is going to react? Um, and then monitor, monitoring your own reactions. So that's along the lines of what you're talking about. Um, Jim, do you want to react to George's questions and some of the questions that are in the chat? Yeah, I, I had a question for George. Yeah. Last week, last week, if you can remember, last week you brought this up toward the end of, of the show. And I was curious, what contributed to that? What was it that we said or what were you feeling in that moment? I, I, I want to get an understanding for what um, hired, what moved you to, to, to share that. It's pretty compelling. Without looking at the chat from last week, I'm not sure I could exactly tell you what's, what sponsored that. I think it was, I was carrying that with me as a real challenge, and it seemed like things were a bit too facile. And so I, I threw that out there because I said, this is the kind of frustration I'm carrying at this point. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm, I'm 
I want to know more. I want to get more deeply into this. Um, can you, George, can you, can you give my ears eyes, my ears eyes, what does that look like when you experience what you've been experiencing? What does it look like? What does it sound like? Where is it coming from? Is it the media? Is it your colleagues? Is it the neighborhood? What, I just want to get a sense for, I'm a very okay, visual. Well, what does the, that the most recent like? context was, it was this uh, group phone call that I was telling that's you right, about. That's right, that's right, that's right. And uh, I, I was basically shut up by uh, a black woman and a, and a black man uh, as if I had nothing to say. And then when the conversation was over and I was still on with the facilitator, the facilitator accused me of supporting the white people who spoke up. And what I was trying to do was exactly what you were saying earlier, Jim, I believe in the processes you were talking about. Mm -hmm. I was trying to listen to them and, and respond with active listening and, a, and an awareness. And to them uh, and to the facilitator in the group, who's a white woman, by the way, who, who simply gave me a five-minute lecture about how I shouldn't support those kind of people. And all I was trying to do was active listen, show where my empathy might lie with them. And so, uh, you know, maybe that wasn't the scene for it, but uh, to me, it's more and more typical of what we're experiencing at this point yeah. in, the, in the picture. So... Uh, any insights on your part would be very helpful for me. Absolutely, absolutely. Sen, you're back on? What I'd, like, what I'd like you to do as you're talking through this is, as you're having these difficult conversations, how do you stay authentic? So we're about fearless authenticity, but we're talking about all these issues. So how do those two combine in the situation that uh, George is talking about and some of the other issues and conversations that we're having? One, one of the opportunities, rather than challenges, again, is not attempting to be right, it's attempting to learn, attempting to uncover. Absolutely. And really put yourself in position to, we can't feel what the other person feels. It bothers me when people say, I can understand how you feel. No, you can't. No, you can't. The best of our ability to ask questions, uh, to get a visceral, a cognitive uh, feel for what the person's experiencing and, and not necessarily rushing to write. Because oftentimes when we rush to recovery or rush to write, we're losing out on the lesson, the impact, the feeling that it had on us. And these take their toll. Obviously, George was sitting with this for a while. Now, a next step could be an authentic conversation with the facilitator depending on where she is in, in that moment. And it would, be, it would be moving into that conversation, looking to learn, to uncover, to discover, and to share the impact of the interaction with you. One, model, one way to do that, one model, it's called, it's called the, the trust model. And you start off by talking about your truth what actually happened, the facts, not your opinion, but what exactly the person did. Then you reveal your opinion, how it landed on you, how you felt as a result. Now, it's important that we share facts first and opinion second, because if we start with opinion, now we're having a discussion around my opinion about what you did 
And in most cases, the person has a different opinion. So we're not talking facts. We're talking stories. We're talking opinion. So after you shared your facts, and after you shared your opinion, you asked for the other person to share their opinion of what happened. So now we have truth. We have two opinions. Now let's talk about what we can do going forward so that we're better communicating in the future. And finally, to express positivity that you're going to be able to get there. But you have to share the facts. You have to share how it landed on you, get their feedback, and more, move more toward reconciliation or working more harmoniously together. Share so, thoughts? Yeah. Yeah, so Jim, I was wondering, um, if you were having this conversation with George, um, where you felt like he, his listening uh, had actually supported white people versus you know, doing what we're talking about, what, what would he say next to somebody in that situation? How does he deal with that when people don't want him to speak at all and their perception is that um, he is white and he cannot have a voice in this conversation? Well, first of all, everyone is supposed to have a voice <laughs> because again, silence is violence. Number two, for me, it's wanting to understand where that reaction came from. There's a narrative or a story that's there for them. I want to uncover that because I perhaps don't have the power to change how they see me. But I want to understand more about how they see me and why. So rather than, again, not looking to win, it'd be me sharing with George to ask them why they felt that way. What did he say? What contributed to that? But sometimes people on the receiving end ask questions that are really statements. I can't answer a question that's, I mean, I can't answer a statement that's disguised as a question. There's nothing I'm going to be able to say. So I want to get to the root. Is this a question or are you sharing through question how you feel about something that's happened, something that I said, something that I've done? Uh, Eliza would like to, to jump in at this point. Eliza Van Court. Eliza is a colleague of mine. Eliza is a fabulous woman. Her new book is coming out. She's a musician. She's an anti-racism expert. I'm looking forward to doing more work with her in the future. And Eliza, I'm glad you have come on. How are you? I'm so happy to be here. Yeah, I just came from a photo shoot for my book, which is why I'm all dolled up like this. <laughs> so so yeah, this is an Your head and your heart chomping at yeah. the bit? <laughs> well, it's an interesting conversation. Um, I guess my, my question, my thought is a little different. Uh, I think my interpretation when I do anti-racist work, the way that I approach it is that historically um, people of color don't have the privilege of sharing their feelings. Uh, so black people have the privilege of sharing, uh, white people have the privilege, I have the privilege of sharing my feelings. So for me, when we talk about how does it feel to you, when I'm talking to somebody and they're telling me their experience, if they are a person of color, my job really isn't to share how it's making me feel. My job is to listen to them and believe that the, the impact that they're telling me my words are having is real. 
and then say, well, what can I do differently? And I think that's the main, the main take home for me. It's really not about um, the white person's experience so much because really most of the time we live in a racialized world and white people are walking around able to share their feelings all the time and people of color are having to be very careful because usually they're in predominantly white spaces and if they do share their opinions, they can really get eviscerated. So I think, I don't know, I think we have to be, to me, you have to be a little careful when you start talking about um, being, I, I have a chapter in my book called The Privilege of Sharing Your Feelings. And I think yeah. that we just have to be a little careful with, with that because you and I, George, we can share our feelings, but I mean, I often get called into places to talk uh, about race because white people, when they talk about race, are received better than black people. And so an all black staff will call me in and say, we need you to talk because they don't listen to us. And when we talk, we get pushed back. So I don't know, that was sort of my, my first thought on this. Uh, one thing I'd like to throw in Eliza that builds on what you're saying is if somebody reacts really strongly to me, uh, one of the things I can do in the moment, it's just a simple thing to do is to apologize. Look, I'm really sorry. Yeah. I did not mean to have that impact on you. Help me right. understand what was I doing. So I would um, I would apologize. I think when when I get faced with that kind of anger and that kind of you know um, well sometimes it's aggression. It's I'm really sorry. Yeah, and I think the sorry the sorry also has to be carefully delivered because yeah. I think one thing that white people often do is say they're sorry and they're looking for the other person to absolve them of responsibility and to take care of them. And I'm not saying you're doing that at all, but that's something that I also talk about a lot is this, oh, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I feel terrible, I feel terrible. And then the person of color ends up comforting the white person as opposed to just being like, oh gosh, that was super white of me, sorry, what can I do differently in the future? <laughs> yeah, that's the kind of thing that I was talking about, Eliza, is just, you know, I didn't mean that, I'm sorry. Help me understand. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly how you want to approach it. Um, oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, I, may I ask a question to George? Is that allowed? Yeah. <laughs> I've never been on this format. So, so, George, what was your concern when you were having that conversation? I mean, I think you said last time that you have, uh, you feel as a white male, you're not able, your voice isn't heard. Is that what you were saying? I wasn't sure I was understanding, and I just wanted to understand further. No, uh, basically, this is a conversation, by the way. This is an ongoing every Friday phone call that we have mm -hmm. with the same cast, okay? And uh, a couple of the people on there are very angry and very hurt about the racism situation, which I accept totally. Mm -hmm. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I don't, I'm not there for acceptance. And, you know, when I, talk about my engagement in this sort of stuff, it's dismissed as trying to get a good pedigree and get on my better side. And what I'm trying to express is, here's the things that I've been trying to make work in my life and my experience with other people. Uh, but uh, that's not a welcome part of the, uh, the conversation. I don't feel like I've had to apologize. I mean, I accept the anger. I mean, I can live with that. I mean, I'd like to see it resolved, obviously, but uh, the pain that people are experiencing, it's got them out on the street and, and uh, you know, hopefully going to change some of the systemic stuff. This is absolutely essential to what we're doing. Um, so I, basically what I'm looking for is 
I don't, maybe I don't even need a response. Maybe I just be part of that conversation and listen. Uh, but it repeats itself over and over again, uh, week after week. So mm -hmm. I'm not, but the thing that really surprised me was when the facilitator uh, took me aside and admonished me for defending white people when I was simply trying to do active listening uh, and understanding of a couple of the white interventions that took place in the, in the thing. So I think uh, what Jim said is, is probably on target. I need to have a separate conversation with her, not just something that lasted 10 minutes at the end of a, at the end of a meeting and <clears throat> which I basically just got, I, I felt like a, a little kid being <laughs> done in by my school mom, you know. But <laughs> uh, mm -hmm. it's okay. I, I, I understand that. And I understand, you know, she's highly active uh, feminist working for a men's organization. And we're all concerned about the, uh, the, the man box, you know, all of the kinds of things that we're trying to do to not, not disappear men's culture, but enhance it give it more facility, give it more sensitivity, and so on and so forth. So I don't know where that came from. Maybe she was, I should have another conversation, obviously, as Jim, as Jim recommended. But uh, I don't know if I'm yeah. answering your question, I'm, I'm... I think so. I mean, I guess the only thing that I would really tune into there is, you know, I, I heard you say that people are really angry and hopefully we'll get past that. And I guess I would say two things. One is that historically, people of color are not allowed to show anger. And in fact, it's deadly. Um, mm -hmm. and, and so, and they, white people can get angry in, the, in a way that if you're black, if Jim were to get angry, he would have a completely different reception. And so I think that when people are getting angry at this point, it's because, partly because we have intergenerational tra trauma, you know, from racism. And people are angry because they've not been allowed to express it. And for the first time they feel safe. So I think, and, and I think that happens to a lesser extent to white women. Um, I know when I communicate in a way with some of my colleagues, if a man does it, he's, you know, he's okay. But if I do it, I'm hysterical or I'm shrill or I'm whatever. And so I think that in some ways, part of our job as white people is to accept black anger right now. Because they're, you know, people are angry, they have a really good reason to be. And I think beyond even what happened historically, I think people are starting to get angry because for a while, everybody was really engaging in anti-racist work and really interesting, interested. And now that things are opening up with COVID, suddenly people are thinking it's more fun to go out to dinner and there's much less engagement on this issue, which is why I think what you guys are doing is so exceptional here today. Um, because the conversation really has to keep going. And, you know, white people, we have the luxury and the privilege of tiring and just kind of tuning out, in which you're not doing, George, um, from this conversation, whereas black people can't tune out because every day they are black. <laughs> so, um, you know, so I think, I think for white people, you know, there is that stereotype of the angry black man and the angry black woman, which makes black people have to, and I think in many ways, it's kind of our job to receive that anger right now. Of course, I mean, that's basically my orientation to this. And as a matter of fact, I'm glad that anger is there because that anger has the potential of changing things. There's mm -hmm. no question about it. It's valid, it's true, uh, and I'm just floundering around seeing how I can be a better ally in this situation because this affects lots of people that are part of my life. Mm -hmm. i just to give you a totally different example. 
I, I have a Chinese colleague who lives in Warsaw, and he's out wearing his face mask, but they can see he has sort of an Asian face. He gets abuse on the street for being responsible for coronavirus. He's lived in Poland for seven, eight years now. Okay, and he's a, he's, he's a, he's a competent uh, consultant in a major consulting firm in Poland. So, you know, it's, it's black anger right on target, but there's lots of other stuff going on in this, and we gotta start finding out how we can support each other to, to, to deal with this rising, rising populism. And, you know, when I just, this is my third hour of teleconference this evening, but I just got done doing a program on, on basically on culture and what we tend to call today as unconscious bias. And yeah. trying to be really clear that this stuff is automatic and it's in us and it's a, it's a survival mechanism. And if you put people under enough pressure and enough fear, what's going to happen is they'll go back to their primitive us-them conversations. Yeah. And, you know, the game is lost at that point, or at least, you know, got to start so over. So, so we have a lot in the, there, there's some comments in the chat room about these, um, you know, your deepest beliefs and, and biases and how they play a part in these conversations. And how do you stay, you know, fearlessly authentic and, and have these conversations with those beliefs and biases? Um, how would you all answer that question or, or address that topic? Actually, I'd like to, Jim, I'd like to find out where you are with all of this right now. You've been kind of quiet and uh, <laughs> <laughs> uncharacteristically so. And so um, I'd just like to uh, hear what, what's going on in your mind. Oh, absolutely. There's a number of things. One, again, I wanted to make sure I didn't jump into my pain versus your pain. I truly wanted to and want to hear uh, how George felt about the situation. I am so in agreement with what Eliza's been saying. Um, as she was talking, I was thinking about back in the, the 80s and 90s when I did diversity and inclusion work. And I, I wrote a blog. And the blog was called Malcolm, Martin, or Tom the three faces of a black male diversity consultant. Because wow. at some point during my workshop, at some point, somebody in there was gonna see me as Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, or Uncle Tom. If I didn't talk enough about black rights, then I'm Uncle Tom. If I'm going too strong at you, then I'm Malcolm X. If I'm talking about both sides, then I'm Martin Luther King. And one of the times I really, really ran into a stop sign was when I was attempting to, I guess, be more of an advocate for some of the white women that were in the room because I felt a lot of the energy was, was aimed toward them. And after the session, I remember the three of them came up to me and said, this was the worst thing I've ever participated in. I'm like, I was trying to help. <laughs> so as, as, I, as I hear Eliza, as I hear George, this, this is a, a slippery slope, but for me, when we all are as angry, things will get done. Not one group's angry and one group is okay, I'm angry for a moment. No, this has to be a movement ongoing. So when we both are fired up, then we're gonna see results. And, and I think I mentioned to you, uh, Sherry, a couple times after uh, 
George Floyd's murder, I got on calls with clients and how you doing? How's everything? Like, not good. <laughs> I'm not good right now. So it's not business as usual, rush right into the work. I'm experiencing something that's, that's not good right now. So to your question, Sherry, my, my conversation with George today was to, was to learn, was to understand. And now with your question asking me to share, that's authentically, that's where I am. And I have vowed to be that person all the time going forward because I have not always been that person. I have covered, I have talked to think rather than, I mean, think the talk rather than talk the thing. Cover, edit, got a PhD in that work. But I'm being more authentic around these conversations going forward. And actually looking forward to it. I, I didn't, what was the last thing that you said, Jim? You, you kind of blipped out a little bit. Oh, I, I said, I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to having more of these conversations in authentic ways going forward so that we, all of us can come together with this movement and not just make it be a moment. Because the conversation needs to be ongoing and people have to get used to being uncomfortable. Yeah, and I'm oh, sorry, ahead. go ahead. <laughs> oh, I think that's one of the, the, the tenets of anti-racist work is that you as a white person will be uncomfortable and that it's okay to be uncomfortable and it's okay to make mistakes. And I think a lot of people, particularly people who really care about this stuff, like George, um, really, and I don't think you're in that position, but there are a lot of people who are afraid to say anything right now because they're afraid they're going to make a mistake. And really, like anything else, the only way you're going to learn about race is by making mistakes and having people tell you, hey, you know, I didn't like that. And yeah. uh, one of the one of my mentors in this in anti-racist work, uh, Dr. Nia Nan, who's absolutely brilliant, says, you know, the main thing if you want to know how to be an ally, just to sum it up, the main thing is she says, I don't know what's in people's hearts. I have no idea how they're feeling or what their racism is or whatever. I just worry about impact. And if somebody says something doesn't work for me. I listen and I change my behavior. And it sounds really simple, you know, and I, and I allow myself to feel bad, but I don't put that feeling onto the other person and have them take care of me. Um, and I think uh, there, you know, historically up until really now and still now, black people spend a lot of time navigating and taking care of the feelings of white people. And I think it's okay if we are taking care of the feelings of people of color for, you know, right now. Because it's finally, I think a lot of people are open to that listening, which is a beautiful and transformative moment historically. You know, one of the things um, that, that you kind of sparked in my mind just then, Eliza, was this woman at uh, Fielding Graduate University did a study on black women and emotional intelligence. And when you look at all the scores, emotional intelligence increases. Sure, I'm going to interrupt for a second. I got you, oh, you have to go? Oh, that's right, it's 12.45. So we're gonna lose Jim for a little bit until next time. It looks like he's frozen anyway. Oh, there you go. Unfortunately, I have to, I have to take off. I'll Last be back next week, same time. Be well, Jim, thank you. <laughs> Enjoy the rest of the conversation. This has been very, very good. Thank you, Jim. Uh, I just wanted to finish up what, uh, what I was saying is that uh, so she did this research on emotional intelligence and it, emotional intelligence is, increases as you age because the more experience we get in dealing with difficult situations, the more emotionally intelligent uh, we came. And in her study, 
you know, because they use the, some of the typical measures of emotional intelligence. All the black women in the study had the highest levels of emotional intelligence. Of course, because they have that, to. <laughs> that speaks to adversity. That speaks to dealing with uh, a lot of situations where you have to manage yourself, manage your reactions, um, and get engaged in the process. So, um, I mean, I think it's a very interesting um, piece of information about how we deal with stuff and how we deal with our emotions. Yeah, I think D'Angelo's work, um, if anybody wants to read about this on white fragility, is really, really powerful. Um, and if you have a chance to read her book, White Fragility, it's, it's fascinating. And it's about that reaction and how, you know, it's really interesting stuff. That sounds good. Maybe we can uh, get that in the chat or something. Yeah, please. If you could put that in, in chat, Eliza, that would be great. Um, and I, I, I want to go back to the question I initially asked about, you know, when you have deep-seated bias and belief, um, there's, some there's some different questions and comments about that in the chat. Um, one, you know, how do we stop this polarization given all of the bias that everybody comes to the party with? And we, you know, uh, Melba says, I think the first thing is to recognize that we all have bias. For me, this is the first time that people are authentically willing to hear our stories, but there can't be a judgment of how I feel. I couldn't go back to work the same after George Floyd's public murder. I had to share with all my non-Black team how deeply I was impacted. Um, so, so please address that. It's, it's giving a voice to that experience and it, and it takes courage uh, to be able to stand with that and talk about uh, the impact that it's had on you. Um, I think it, there's a huge amount of courage involved in us continuing these conversations. And, you know, we want, we want to fix things right away. We, everybody wants to fix it and make it better. And everybody has a different healing process. No two people's healing process is going to be the same. Some people may never heal in their lifetime from what they feel are injustices that um, they've experienced. So we've got this uh, anger, we've got people wanting to fix it, we've got this sort of jumble of healing that people want to help and do. Uh, and I think somebody said in the chat that we've got to go after the structural problems that we have, which is a huge, huge agreement on, uh, on my part. Uh, with that. And it's just, how do we do that? We've got very fixed institutions. And it's the people's voice in this country that do it. I don't know, Eliza, what would you uh, respond to with that? In terms of how we attack, we attack white supremacy in, in um, the workplace? Is that what you're asking? I was looking at the chat. But that's what you're asking, sort of the institutionalized isms that we're talking about? Well, I mean, there was, uh, Cindy had asked us a question about something, oh, it was Melba that had uh, commented about it. And so I was kind of responding to that. Yeah, how do you attack that? Well, I mean, I think the first thing is the onus is not upon black people or people of color to, to do it at all because they're not the people <laughs> who are causing the problem. Um, and so it's really, and I think it's really important that white people talk with white people about it because we don't really, you know, often the thing happens where you will go to your black friend and say, can you help me? And if you can find actually a white person who, who does anti-racist work, um, because a lot of my friends during this whole time have had a ton of people calling them saying, I'm so sorry, what can I do, what can I do? And as they were mourning what happened, 
And as they were getting in touch with everything that was going on, they were taking care of their white friend's emotional life. So, and that's, and that's hard, um, especially when you have a lot of people who really care about you and love you at the same time you end up being the caretaker. Um, but I think in terms of attacking it institutionally, the most important thing actually is to have conversations like this. That's the first thing. And then to learn terminology. I know that sounds like a little thing, but it gives everybody a shared language to make sure that everybody kind of understands what, so when I go and I give my talks at different places, people leave with a framework of understanding so they can talk in a way that it doesn't feel like people are, are attacking them. Um, and then I think there's actually, and I, I gotta look it up, but there's a wonderful, um, uh, there are two people I'm gonna actually look it up right now who have an entire rubric on how to create anti-racist spaces. And it would actually really surprise you the stuff that they do uh, some of it is things like don't rush decisions or be okay with conflict or, um, you know, all of these things that actually you wouldn't think are directly tied to race, but really race, talking about race is a slow process. So every time you're going quickly, you're going to skip over that. So kind of giving the room for people to breathe and really listen and hear each other, I think is one of the primary things. But, you know, the, the bottom line is the organization needs to be committed to doing anti-racist work and they need to have it be an ongoing process because racism, you know, they often say it's like a cold that's in the air we breathe. We're all sick with it. And it just depends on how sick we are and if we are aware of it. Right. If we're aware of it, then we can be like, oh, okay, I'm doing that thing. I'd like, to, I do differently. I'd like to make another note here. Um, yes. I noticed Anders' uh, comment about <clears throat> U.S. and Europeans. Um, actually, you know, the, what happened in the protests over the last weeks uh, has stimulated uh, reflection in Europe about what's going on. And uh, often more protests of different sorts. And I, I think I probably disagree with you, Anders, about the fact that I think color is very important in this. You know, if you look at the, if you look at the, the structure of power and class, well, the United States, the issue is also an extremely important class issue. Of all the developed countries in the world, the United States has the most extreme differentiation in poverty and, and capability, which works with the systemic racism, uh, as well as dealing with, uh, handling a lot of other people who are not people of color. Uh, in Europe, we seem to have better economic distribution, but there's still this idea that that color is involved. Okay, so, you know, if your name is Muhammad, you have 60% chance less of getting a job that you're equally qualified with, with somebody whose name is David. Uh, so we're, we, we, we see that as religious, but it's also seen as color here in Europe. And it's shades of color, perhaps, but um, uh, it's, the, the, it, Andrew says, yes, there are other dividers between us and them, religious, ethical, geographical, and so on. Um, and all of these are real. Uh, and they're difficult to deal with. And, you know, the virus and the manifestations have triggered our consciousness. And it, what it reminds me of is a, my, my, my motto in life is uh, taken from Leonard Cohen's song, Hallelujah, where he says, 
there is a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. <laughs> no? And I, I, I believe that we need to pay attention. There's so much broken now. There's a chance to put it together in a different way. And I'm, I'm hoping we can get the kind of uh, <clears throat> conversations and synergy, despite the extreme difficulty of doing so, to put it back together in another way. Amen. End of sermon for today. <laughs> Thank you, George. Um, we're actually at uh, 12.55 or just about, so we have five more minutes. Um, if you'd each like to take a minute um, and, and say anything you'd like to let everybody know in closing, that'd be great. So, Eliza, go for it. I got me. <laughs> um, well, I just put uh, some links in here, which are really, really helpful. Uh, Kenneth Jones and Tema Oaken are, ha actually have outlined workbook steps on how to create an anti-racist space. And it's wonderful. And I recommend people take a look at it. And I think it's a great space just to get rid of any ism or really just to enhance communication, period. Uh, to me, race is one of the biggest taboos in society. So if you can actually start having conversations about race, you can have conversations about a lot of things because you have to heighten your communication skills to do that. Um, I think the last thing I wanted to hit on, and, and it's, we haven't really gone on the subject of this yet, but I do think it's important is, you know, my background is personally, my, my ethnic, my, my, my makeup is um, I'm Sephardic Jewish. So that means I'm a Spanish Jew. I'm also Italian and um, I'm a little Dutch. And uh, for a long time, I would say, well, you know, I have this, I have oppression because of, you know, a lot of my family died in the Holocaust and, you know, that kind of thing. And I think a lot of times white people tend to also point to, as you did, George, historic oppression of white people. And I think the important thing to understand is the bottom line is there, there are gradations of whiteness and there are gradations of blackness. If you are white, you will nowadays, right, you pass, you, you are going to be treated with white privilege. And even if you are black and you are white passing, you're going to be treated with more white privilege. And in fact, the darker you are, the less privilege you have. So I think it's important, while it's important to look at those historic roots, this country has not come to terms with what we've done with slavery, unlike Europe, which really worked very hard to dissect and unpack what happened in World War II. So I think that there is a special kind of pushback that black people get, which is why they are, you know, getting anti-black violence more than any, more than any other group, they are actually dying on the streets. And so I think while it's important to do that, I think comparing that can be problematic because black people really hold a very specific place in our country in terms of what they've dealt with, what they continue to deal with, and our inability to actually push into the discomfort of having that conversation. So, I mean, that for me is one of the really it took me a long time to not sort of kind of want to disavow. Well, I'm not really that, that white. I'm <laughs> Spanish. And, but the truth is I get so much privilege for being white. And I think that the, we have to really start looking at impact, as I said earlier. And when people are, when you're interacting with people, what are they actually experiencing rather than what their genetic makeup is? Because um, what you look like in this country, unfortunately, has a huge, huge impact on how you're treated. And um, I guess I want to just say one other thing, which is that they've actually done research in the workplace that black people have something called like a stress tax. They have to deal with navigating racism so much that they actually underperform at work 
because so much of their energy is spent navigating whiteness. And so if we can actually work on this problem, imagine how much more productive and how much more fruitful all of our workplaces will be. So it's, it's really a benefit to everyone, not, not, you know, not just black people. It's a global benefit you know, if we start working on this stuff and dismantling it and unpacking it. I think I may have two sentences more in this regard. I think it's extremely important that we come together on honest history. I don't know how we teach in school and avoid the story of racism. I mean, let's face the fact, the theories of eugenics that were used in the Third Reich came out of Stanford University, propagated by Henry Ford, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I won't go into all of that. I'm a history buff. And once you read the real history, there's no way you can substantiate uh, the kind of veneer that makes white, white, and privileged. It's very clear. Thank you. Okay, so we're de- we have uh, one minute left. Um, Eliza and George, thank you so much for joining us and for your contributions. Um, it really has been powerful. Sherry, would you like to close us out? Absolutely. And I think the time is here for each of us to uh, really step into our power in terms of who we are, how we can connect with other people, uh, how we can stay real, have these conversations, and find ways to really build uh, more connections, deeper relationships, and deeper connections. There are a lot of isms, and the work has to start here. It has to start in your own heart accepting your own biases and saying, what am I bringing to the table today? And once I can focus more on what I'm contributing to in terms of what the problem is, uh, then I can actually listen to somebody else's story because I'm not looking to say, hey, you're doing X to me. So thank you everybody. Thank you so much, Eliza and George for being here. Appreciate it much. Join us next week. Don't know what the conversation is going to be. We haven't figured it out yet, but we're going to keep being fearlessly authentic here with uh, Jim and myself. So thank you, everybody. Thank you. Thank you so much. Bye-bye, everybody. Thank Thank you, George.